This is Unsupervised Learning, Redpoint's AI podcast. I'm Jacob Efron, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pat Chase. And today we had an incredible guest in Linus Lee, who helps head up a lot of what Notion is doing in AI. We had a pretty wide-ranging conversation, hit on a lot of really interesting topics, including how Notion structures their AI team, what some of the hardest things were to anticipate when they were going to market with their new AI features, a behind-the-scenes of how the Notion team went about building AI writer and autofill, and where they decide to build versus let their partners open AI and Anthropic build. It was a really fun one, particularly because we talked about Q&A, which is a new feature that Notion released this week. I think folks are really going to enjoy this. We've been looking forward to having you on, I feel like, for, for a long time. Um, and to start, I, you know, one thing I always really enjoy about your Twitter is that I feel like it oscillates between, like, really good insights on AI and design and then Taylor Swift. Yes, of course. Um, I feel like you're a big Swifty. I, I, I am as well. Brooks, um, we were just actually on my way here talking about it. Coworker and I were talking about which shows we've gone to and... So it's a constant theme in my life. Once I wrote a, a mock paper on the, what I've termed the Taylor Swift scaling laws, which is the power <laughs> law relationship that ex, the a log log relationship that exists between how close you are in 3D space to the stage at a Taylor Swift show and how how far into her career the show is and how close you are to the concert date. And the closer you are, the closer you are to the stage and the show date, and the farther you are into her career, the price exponentially increases. Ooh, and wow. so somewhere on the internet, I, there's a PDF of, of, of some paper <laughs> that's like the scaling laws and it is all very, but um, that is something I thought about. That makes a lot of sense. So rather than uh, than getting cheaper, it just keeps getting more expensive, I guess, as uh, of course. alas. Yeah. Seemingly with no <laughs> limit. Yeah, a little bit different than compute, but you know. <laughs> but also quite scarce these days. Yes, that is fair. Actually, more, I mean, more scarce uh, from what, Which market is more scarce, Taylor Swift tickets or... H100. Yeah, if only there was That's a, a public question. company we could invest in that had cornered uh, all of the Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if Ticketmaster is public, but um, <laughs> that would certainly be a good stock time. Yeah, I guess congressional hearings only on one of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, awesome. Well, yeah, we were super excited about this. I think um, Notion is one of the companies that has shipped AI features really, really quickly into their mm -hmm. product and in production using LLMs and all of the latest in, in generative AI. Um, maybe just to kick it off, uh, it'd be great to give our listeners some context on um, the different products that you guys have at Notion AI and kind of what is um, what goes into Notion AI today uh, from a product perspective. Yeah, so just for some context, I joined Notion's AI team this past January, January 2023, which is a few months after Notion as a company had started working on AI. And the story, although I wasn't there, the story goes that around, around this time last year, actually almost exactly a year ago, um, there was a company offsite, and uh, instead of Ivan and, and Simon, our, our CEO and um, co-founder, to the two co-founders, instead of going off and joining the company every single day with the, with the rest of the company, um, they took a few days off uh, on the offsite because GPT-3 had just dropped, and um, and they wanted to play with it and see kind of how it would be incorporated. They saw that it was an interesting writing tool, and that a lot of other companies were investigating writing approaches at the time, and so they they wanted to see what they could do inside the product, and so they took. In the classic hackathon style, they took a few days off and just like hacked in the hotel room. And there were uh, there's like photos in our internal notion from this period of like Simon with like 18 bottles of water just like <laughs> in the in the hotel room coding. And what they came out of out of that like hackathon weekend was the first version of Notion AI, which internally we started calling Notion AI Writer because it helps you write. And so the first thing that we worked on that went to uh, beta last November and then came out in February is AI Writer. It's AI in your documents, so you can ask it to say, like, hey, summarize this page um, in XYZ format, or pull out key ideas, action items, um, key topics, or you could even, a lot of people like to use it for fixing spelling and grammar mistakes, or fixing, uh, improving their writing, improving their voice and style. And so this kind of tool to edit and revise writing or, or draft um, help you get some ideas down. A lot of people use it to get like basic marketing copy down. So that was the first thing that we shipped in, in February. Um, and through that process, one main theme that we picked up on is AI and humans always work together to iterate on things to get to a better outcome. And so a lot of people will use AI to like either generate a draft or once they've written a draft, iterate on it to, to fix mistakes and find ways to improve it. Um, and so one of the things we added in this kind of beta testing period was a way to conversationally follow up and, uh, and say, okay, you've generated something now, then make it shorter or make it more punchy or something like that. Um, the next thing that we worked on was called AI autofill. So we had brought AI to the document. Another common use case for Notion, especially at uh, startups, is project management because mm -hmm. it's kind of an all-in-one package. If you have Notion, you can all do all these things. And so uh, project management, one common tool people use is Notion databases, which is kind of a relational table 
Um, and so we added AI to be able to automatically fill in entire columns or entire uh, properties, we call it, for uh, if you have a table of meeting notes, you can fill in what are the key topics. Or if you have a table of like customers or user interviews, as a lot of our users do, you can use AI to pull out like what are their core needs or what do they do at their company or something like that from just like an interview transcript. And so Autofill came out in May, along with a lot of the rest of Notion's project management suite. And then the most recent one, which I'm really excited to talk about more today, is one that uh, by the time this comes out, we'll have launched, which is Notion Q&A, mm. which is instead of just helping you write and deal with information at a page level, Notion AI now understands everything inside your workspace and can help you answer questions that, ah, uh, super cool. that yeah, are in, cool. in your workspaces or, or, or in your pages or even maybe span multiple pages. Is the use case, is that kind of like replacing search or then you can ask questions of like your whole team's knowledge base or... Yeah, so the way we arrived at this is actually, there's a couple different paths that crossed. So the, the first one was, obviously, we always like to start with what, what are people using Notion for and what are the kind of core problems that they're facing with the product today. And one common thing that kept coming up as we were trying to figure out what would AI would be useful for is uh, as organizations get bigger and as people's Notion get more complex, Notion workspaces get more complex, one key problem they run into is sometimes it's just hard to keep everything organized. It requires a lot of uh, vigilance. And um, a lot of people have trouble finding information and exactly where they put it. It's, this is doubly the case if you work with lots of other people. They might have written something down, but you don't even know that they wrote something down. And so solving this kind of information finding problem is really key. And along as this was happening, there was sort of also a um, trend that was happening in the broader AI community, which is retrieval augmented generation, where you can ground, machine, ground um, AI in other sort of factual information that you might have had that isn't in your training data set. And so it seemed like the confluence of those two things uh, was a good place to, to build. I'm curious on like the on the Notion AI team, like, you know, I feel like there's the classic product management way of obviously you guys know your customers super well, like what are their core problems? Let's go build things around that. And then I imagine there's also just, wow, a new, you know, rag's really popular now or there's all these new capabilities. Let's go like hack and see what's possible with some of this stuff. Like yeah. how do you kind of balance your your efforts around that on like the product development side and, and how much of it is like more hacky, let's just see what's possible versus like you know the classic kind of PM style of of here's the user problems we're trying to solve. Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a question that we've I think also internally iterated a lot on. We definitely don't have the answers yet, but the way that we've worked so far is kind of a like a expand out and then contract expand contract kind of cycle. And so we go through iterations of sometimes we have a few hunches of what problems are important, very broad problem statements. Like, it seems like it's important to help people keep information organized, or it seems like it's important to help people find information. And then, sort of motivated by that, we have, we'll have a couple of ideas on different techni technologies or techniques, like retrieval augmented generation, that seems promising for that. So a couple of us will go and prototype something really quickly. And then um, once we have a few explorations done of a few different approaches that, that could help solve that problem, usually it'll be, especially since... Notion runs on Notion. We dog food things really heavily. And so by the time we have a few of these things internally and as prototype format, um, it'll be fairly evident which which approaches are more promising, which approaches are less promising. And so we'll pick a few of those, sort of recalibrate ourselves to say, okay, here's the prototype that we have. Here are the problems that we want to solve with a better understanding of the problem, just talking to users and thinking about things, and then better understanding of the strength of a particular approach. We'll have a hunch on, okay, this is the, the direction that we want to actually build and ship. And so once we have that direction, we'll will iterate towards something that we feel confident both in the UX and in the like model output quality, um, what we feel is ready. One thing I'm super curious about is uh, just like the resources that go into um, to shipping one of these products, like from um, e either engineers or design or like like how do um, how much of an investment I guess has it been for you guys to ship? Um, maybe it's writer or one of these new ones, kind of from the ideation phase to when it's in the hands of users. Resources. Um, can you say more about that? Yeah, like I think there's a bunch of startups that come, you know, and they're like, "Oh, we want to add, you know, we're a SaaS app X, and we want to ship uh, an LLM-based uh, feature into our product because we think it will add a lot of value to our customers." Um, how should we think about staffing that project? Right? Is that like one engineer um, for, uh, you know, two engineers for a month and a designer as well to figure out the front end? Um, you know. So I'd just be curious yep. if there are any learnings there from how you guys have um, have staffed the projects. Yeah, I think so. I think this actually kind of couples well with the, your previous question around the phases. And so in the exploratory phase, I think um, the the main thing that's really really important is just how quickly can you iterate, and then how quickly are you kind of forced to iterate on the output. So one of the things that I think 
in the early phases of the, the new Q&A feature that we launched, one of the things that worked really well for us is we had um, a really, really annoying prototype where like anytime anyone asked a question in the company, it would we would try to run this Q&A pipeline and try to answer the question. And it was very annoying. Um, to the point where, like, someone, some people will like come into or the AI team Slack chat up and be like, "Can you please like turn the stuff and thing off? Because it's so annoying." Um, but that that was like the motivation to make it better. It's like everyone's right. going to have so, to deal with yeah. this. For so there were two two <laughs> things that were great about that um, from like where we ended up perspective. One is because it was so in your face, it it forced us to like iterate on the thing to make the quality of the outputs really really good. Um, and it, we were just so face to face with it every day that, like, every if there was any in, in, improvement or any regression, we would notice it. Um, we would have to fix it because people were bumping bombarded with these answers. And then the the other thing that worked well for us is um, because it was being used, uh, it was being used in the context of what work, the work people are already doing. Um, it was really easy to tell whether the thing was useful or not because if it was useful, people would be using it. People were responding, giving feedback, uh, and. If it's not useful, then you know you don't really see any usage, and so it helped both validate and then add pressure to to really improve at least the, the model quality side of it. Um, so I think the, in in that phase, iterating quickly, um, I think you really need a type of person who uh, is like enthusiastic about working with the technology, kind of has maybe one year on the ground about what's happening, what kind of techniques people are trying, mm-hmm. because it's still such a new space, and then um, is able to sort of operate with a vision of this is this is the problem that we have solved in this kind of way, and if there are some technical problems or if there are some like operational problems that come along the way, we're going to try to like break through them to actually build a mm-hmm. prototype that works and like solves the problem and does the job. Once you have a more defined kind of picture of the solution, I think it much more resembles a normal product building process mm-hmm. where you have you know user research and designers and you kind of work together in a in a way that most other traditional SaaS features are built to ship something. Got it. So in the in the ideating process, is that literally just one person like you or and then kind of taking that front end back end like full stack. End to end, or it's a few of us. We have about a dozen or so people on the Notion AI team. Uh-huh. Um, it's pretty evenly split between folks that spend more of their time working on, like data model, what we call quality, which mm-hmm. is like how how correct are the model outputs, how, how um, coherent are they, and so on. And then the the other half works on what you call the more the product concerns, like interface integration into Notion. And that's the twelve. Is that all Eng? And then do you also have design resources? Because I feel like there's a big front end component to a lot of like the workflows, especially at yeah. Notion. Like you guys have been super thoughtful about like suggesting or guiding users towards um, you know what might be useful prompts. Yeah, we have a couple of designers we work with also, and so um, frequently we'll sort of, especially in the ideation phase, we'll we'll check in together often to figure out motivated by what we'd be able to accomplish, what we've been able to get the model to output. Um, what are some ways that we can present that in a nice way? Um, and then every every couple of weeks there's new iterations. Is it all end to end with like that particular team, or at some point do you transition to you know a product team that's kind of overseen that part of the product traditionally? Or this is a question we feel like we haven't fully answered yet. Um, the state of things currently for us is we have a core AI team, um, and there are right now most of the AI features that we've launched there is like. There is a specific AI surface. So if you're using our AI writer product, um, there's you like hit a hotkey or hit space, and there's this bar that comes up, and, and that's like one space. Um, with Q and A, there's a totally other separate like chat box that you talk to, um, and so it makes sense that both the backend components and the UI components our team owns. Um, there are other features like autofill is actually much more integrated with our databases, and so currently our databases team. Um, Owns and works on that feature. There's still a pretty tight collaboration. So the 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 folks that work on the autofill feature, I still work with really closely, and we try to figure out. Sometimes, especially if there are hard AI problems, we try to col- collaborate and figure out what the solution space there looks like. Um, I think there's a, a few different ways this could go, right? Like one is like a kind of a hub team, and then sort of liaisons and other teams. Um, and it's more of like a, a partnership thing, and then you could also imagine there being sort of AI engineers in every single team, which is a little bit further from the situation we have today, but it's certainly possible. I think it's a function of both kind of how we want to organize the AI, like foundational AI technologies that Notion is working on, and I think also what shape the ending Notion AI product as a whole ends up taking. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it varies on like a feature-by-feature basis to some extent. Yeah, and we're also still trying to figure out um, what the like foundational pieces of Notion AI are. And so like my... my Thoughts on retrieval in particular, actually, I think it changed over time. Where in the beginning, I thought it was sort of a purpose-built thing just for like answering questions types of things. But now I think retrieval sort of augments 
every capability in some way. And so it's a foundational thing that if you get it right, just like you can use a normal language model in a bunch of different ways, including some features that don't even output natural language directed to the user, if you have a model that's really good at retrieving and answering questions or accomplishing actions based on some retrieved result, then I think that also can be used in places that aren't necessarily about asking questions, but maybe about like finding related information or um, surfacing recent changes in a document or, or anything of that. that right. Sort. So it always is going to be better at providing more context, which right. is probably helpful for. So in that way, it's a, it's like a foundational thing. And even if we had like a Q and A specific team of some sort, it may still make sense for the foundation team to like work on a work on the like retrieval component. So I think we're still gonna in the process of figuring it out. It's super cool, and I think a, lo- a bunch of companies are kind of working through that. Um, now, and I think a lot have landed on a similar structure where they have kind of the AI SWAT team together almost, and then, uh, but I think over time, once it becomes a skill that's kind of in every engineer's toolkit, then maybe they'll expand out from that um, to have like these AI engineers more embedded, or maybe every engineer is an AI engineer. Maybe, I mean, I think I'm less familiar with like the the like DevOps yeah. uh, boom, and I don't know if it's busted, but but the de- <laughs> DevOps boom, I think there, there are also, I think there was a sense this this dialogue that went on of like, oh, every engineer should be like doing ops. And it's yeah. like true to some extent, but you still want an infrastructure team that that manages and builds tools and does monitoring and so yeah. on. I think a lot of LLMs, um, and I think we, we've seen similar things with ML too, but I think LLMs will see, I, my bet is we'll end up in a similar position where like even if a lot of engineers are empowered to use the language models to solve different problems, there's still a huge benefit to having some team that centralizes on a solution to like, how do we monitor this thing? How do we ensure quality? Yeah. Are there like, internal, um, how do we manage data sets internally? How do we train models and make sure that that there's like a regular kind of training cycle? Tool, tools around all of these workflows, I think it still ha- makes sense to have a single kind of pod working on it. What have you guys learned about how your users interact with AI products? And, um, you know, it sounds like you do a bunch of dog fooding with, you know, testing them all out internally. Mm-hmm. Um, but what have you learned about, you know, how to educate um your users on Notion AI or using these different uh, new products as you're shipping them? I guess we have a couple different ways. So using it internally, I think, is uh, particularly during the like ideation phase, I think is still the richest kind of source for figuring out what are the most useful ways of using something. Um, but Notion uses Notion in a very particular way, yeah. which is like we use every single feature that we have, and then we also use it extensively for everything that we can use it for. And so uh, a lot of our customers... Not exactly representative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some people use it like we do, but some people, they're like individuals or students. A lot of our users are students, which we love, whom we love. And then um, there are some customers that, you know, for some reason we can't figure out, they're using Google Docs in addition to us. Um, so so there's lots of, lots of different usage patterns in the first phase, we sort of try to look internally to figure out how people are mm-hmm. using it. And then we have um, some early testers, ambassadors, Notion ambassadors, and other kinds of partners that we, we work with. Um, and often they'll take um, they'll take the initial features, particularly if they require some like prompt engineering. They'll take these features and try to use it for totally unanticipated use cases. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes we're like, oh, that's a really specific use case, and we don't want to support that and other, other times we're like hey that's actually that makes a lot of sense even though we haven't um, we haven't thought of it and so sometimes they'll inspire new features that we build internally a good example concrete example of this is when we initially launched autofill um, one of the early ca- use cases that we saw a lot of usage for particularly the abroad outside of the US is translation hmm. um, and so people would use a custom prompt field to say hey, translate this page into some other language or translate the summary into some other language and so now translation is one of the built-in kind of prompts very um, cool I think this pattern of having a bunch of built-in um, a kind of engineer-optimized prompts in addition to like a custom thing um, is is it's actually kind of a notion notiony pattern, and that we have with Notion more broadly, there are uh, Notion sanctioned kind of patterns, and there are templates, and then you can also fully hand customize them. With prompts, I think it's similar, where uh, we use the custom, fully extensible part of our AI features to figure out what the key use cases are, and then we end up over time building them into these like pre-baked. Um, formulas or templates or prompts. And do almost all people use the pre-baked prompts or like what do you kind of notice on, on the user behavior side? So th- there's always kind of a power law with these things, right? So um, the most popular use cases, for, and particularly for autofill and writer, um, the most popular use cases are these like pre-built things. And so mm. um, summarization is a really, really popular use case. Improved writing and, and fixing grammar mistakes are another really, really popular use case. Um, depending on which locale you look at, translation is also quite popular. But then there's also, if you just look at like the total amount of usage or like number of tokens generated, an, another huge part of our usage is 
um, people iterating on these model outputs. Hmm. And so we have this particular prompt that's for taking some user requests and like revising revising output. Um, and that accounts for a lot of our usage as well, which is which is interesting. And it kind of shows uh, it's a peek into like how people are using these features, which is that they they use these pre-built things to get inspired about how that you could use it. And then they end up iterating to fit their specific use case. And I think if you t- if you talk to the Nishnaya AI power users, they'll usually start start in this kind of way, and then they'll end up often handwriting these prompts that they reuse over and over and over again. To um, we, I, I talked to like a newsletter writer recently, where they have a template that takes an episode of a newsletter or an issue of a newsletter, and then generates the like uh, social meta image uh, tag that shows up nice. on on Facebook. And so they've like polished that. Over time, and they just keep using that same problem. We should try that with uh, unsupervised learning. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, Let's get that get that in. <laughs> yeah. But it's so interesting that, like, you know, helping users get over the like, you know, blank canvas problem. I feel like it's, it's amazing, even you know, whether it's uh, LLM based or even in like the, a lot of the kind of text to image, you know, models have the same thing where uh, staring at a blank screen, it's hard to know what to do, and then you kind of see how people prompt it. You see, you remix those in some ways. Um, it feels like a common. And you know, even we talked to Canva. I feel like uh, you know, maybe three six months ago, and they were super focused on that. Like, how do you just get people seeing what the possibilities are? Because then the creative juices get flowing. Right. Then that's the that's the big difference between the like AI power users that I've talked to and people who are like, oh, I don't really know what what this could be useful yet. Is the people that use it a lot um, often the the key use cases that they find are the ones the initial ones that we sort of ended up rolling out uh, pre built prompts for, uh, where they say, hey, I'm a like a marketer or I'm a recruiter, and here there's like a use case that's particularly like well defined for the thing that I want to use AI for, and so that makes sense. And they get inspired and they try to iterate and build their own use cases on top of sort of pre-built templates. Um, where if you are you know an, an engineer that like lives your entire day in like a C code base or something, maybe writing docs is less useful or automating writing docs is less useful, useful to you, and so you don't end up um, having as many opportunities to bump into these different use cases where AI could be useful inside Notion. Um, I think pre-built prompts is one. I think also one thing that we've thought about is like maybe we could, depending on what we see you're working on, suggest uh, different kinds of. Actually, a really um, obvious one is like if you've used AI to generate something, we could probably look at that and make a good guess at like what kinds of revisions you might want to make next. Hmm. And so that's something we thought about. Um, but as always, like getting, turning, typing, coming up with something to say to the AI is still a lot of. Like mental work, and so if you can make it into like, oh, here's a few options, here's one, and I like, I think that's always the best. And so, as you think about a feature like Q and A, um, you know, from inception, which obviously it sounds like you saw all the rag stuff going on. It's not, you know, I'm sure there was lots of ways you thought about incorporating rag into Notion. What ends up as you think about that end to end process? What ended up being like? way harder than you would have thought from the start to actually get this shipped and like into production, and uh, something you thought might be hard, but actually didn't turn out to be that hard. There are a lot of hard things. <laughs> um, I guess at a there there's some like hard technical things, and then things I think there's hard product problem things. One really hard, I think it was something that we expected to be hard, but is like as hard as we expected it to be, which is just um, particularly with language models evaluation, which is I, I'm sure a theme that you've heard lots of other people talk about. Um, but for for um, something is where correctness and quality really, really matters, like Q&A. So if you think about writer um, and how people use it to write, like draft their emails or write a story or something like that, or begin the draft of an essay, there's actually a lot of wiggle room. Like if you, if you ask for, um, if you ask AI to say like, hey, can you write me a uh, you know, high quality academic style essay about uh, the benefits of a transform model? It'll like do a pretty good job, but there's lots of different ways that the model could have done that and totally. still fit your expectations. Where Q&A is like you're asking for one specific answer mm-hmm. and there's uh, there's a lot of different ways that the model can mess up and say the wrong thing or, or not look at the right document. And so it's much more black and white. And I think that plus the fact that there, there's a fuzzy boundary to sometimes what we think the model should be able to do. Like um, some people, a lot of the questions that we, we want to answer are questions that are answered by some content on a specific Notion page. But another common answer, especially when we started handing it out to users, we saw it was like people will sometimes ask very meta questions about Notion. Like huh. they'll ask like, how can I share this page with Jack? And like that's not really that's not really in your Notion workspace, yeah. but you could imagine why someone would want totally. to ask that to like a, like a Ask Notion AI feature, right? Um, or like how many people are in my workspace? It's it's kind of like a meta question, huh. and so anticipating all the different kinds of questions. Or another one actually that we spent a lot of time working on was questions of this form, um, like uh, what is the marketing team working on this week? 
the this huh. week part is like there isn't really a document in your workspace that says on the week of October 25th, this is what, what, what the team worked yeah. on. It's just there's constant updates in your workspace, and then models should be able to look at documents sort of like by, by time over time and answer that question. And that's quite different than a traditional kind of RAG pipeline. And so enumerating all these different kinds of ways where the question might poke at the edges of the model's capabilities or the pipeline's capabilities, and then constructing high-quality evaluation sets for those, figuring out what criteria you want to grade on them, um, and eventually finding ways to remedy all these different kind of edge cases, um, padding out the the edges of the model's capabilities, I think was a really hard overall problem. But it's obvious it's a problem that actually has like thirty different subcomponents, right? Yeah. Um, and then from a just like operational perspective, I think there was a lot of questions we wanted to answer around like um, what uh, what are the needs of our customers around like privacy and security, mm-hmm. uh, how, how much scale do we need? Um, and because this is a, this like language model augmented question answering is still a, th- a thing that lots of companies are in the beginning stages of exploring, um, there aren't like clear obvious answers in, from the industry on those questions. And so we have to go back to our customers and sort of start from first principles. On the evaluation side, I'd actually be super curious. Um, do you guys, have you built out tools internally for doing that? Or like, how do you go about evaluating the models kind of um, maybe in development phase, but then also once they're in production? Mm-hmm. Um, most of our, I would say the vast majority of the tools that we use to work on our language model powered AI features are mm-hmm. built in-house. Okay. Um, that's a function of two things. One is back when we started building these things, uh, there weren't as many tools as there are mm-hmm. now. Um, and so we kind of had to build them on our own, but I also think like Notion documents are actually um, very structured and quite complex. Like they're rich text documents, mm-hmm. which to start with are much more complex than like a Wikipedia page or a PDF. Um, they can contain like tables, for example, or contain um, images that can contain columns. Um, and then also a lot of pages have metadata. So if you're using a page to track, keep track of the status of a project, it'll have like tasks associated with that project. It'll have due dates and people involved in it. And it's not um, trivial to represent that just as like plain text. And so we have lots of custom data structures and ways to represent these for models. And so traditional um, sort of off-the-market tools, at least in the beginning, didn't suit our needs as much. Um, and then I think just having your own tools lets you iterate much faster. Mm-hmm. So if you notice that like even something as simple as like, hey, our evaluation tool lets, or maybe there's an off-the-market tool that lets you um, view results from two different models side by side, but it only supports mm-hmm. like two side by side. What if I want to compare a third one? Well, if it's an in-house tool, you know, it's a few minutes to go in and add that third column. And, and I think th- those things kind of end up adding up a lot. But on the evaluation point specifically, we look at it on a kind of a spectrum. Mm-hmm. On the one end are, uh, so you're trading off um, how costly it is to evaluate with how high fidelity the evaluation is. So on the one end are deterministic programmatic evaluations of model outputs and uh, model-graded outputs. And so, and then on the other end are, are like humans looking at the output. And underlying all of this is some evaluation data set Mm-hmm. Where we've said that here is a particularly hard category of problem. Like maybe the category of problem uh, for particularly relevant for Q and A is like answering questions that involve time ranges. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we'll have some like data set for documents that that or user queries and document sets that fit that. Um, and then we'll have some evals that are more like did the model output an answer? Uh, did the model use some form of query that involved a time range? And then on the and then somewhere in the middle are we have a team of human annotators that we work with to um, speed up some processes. And then way on the other end are um, there's actually a lot of payoff to like our ML engineers looking at the model outputs and not just knowing like oh this model did yeah. better than the other model, but looking at the actual outputs and saying why are the models messing up? Is it because the model didn't understand the instructions? Is it because um, it has a hard time thinking about relative dates, but it's better with absolute dates. Like this is a, a one, like, these are the kinds of things that we've seen. And so, people working in the actual systems, looking at model outputs, looking at the data sets, um, has a lot of payoffs. And that's way on the other end of like very costly and expensive, but actually yields um, sort of commensurate rewards. And as you're working on that problem, are you mostly iterating on the way you're prompting with the data that comes out of like the uh, out of the database, or like are you changing the way you're adding like metadata to the embeddings? Like, how do you ultimately solve that problem? Uh, we iterate on the full stack, and so one of the benefits of owning um, everything from the database lo- database layer up is anything anything we want to add or tweak or try out, we can. And so, if we want to, at some point, we experimented with um, adding an extra stage in the 
on top of the traditional Rack pipeline that took retrieved passages or chunks from the vector database and then try to like rephrase or resummarize to better answer the question. And like mm-hmm. that's the kind of experiment that we've done. Run the evals, and at some point we decided it was interesting, and then at some point we decided oh, maybe it's not so helpful. Um, but uh, it's there's depending on the kind of depending on the reason that the pipeline messes up, uh, the right place to intervene is um, a function of that. And so yeah. if the, the reason that the model messes up is actually because of the right the, the document with the answer didn't end up in the model context at all, then that's like an embedding problem or it's a ranking problem or something like that. If it's just, you had the right documents, you just got confused about like what was the most relevant part or something like that, then that's like the answering part of the pipeline. And so that again, that's the part where like just numeric evaluations doesn't do, do justice to the problem and you have to have someone sit down and figure out what are the most common reasons that the model is messing up and go back to the pipeline and figure out where to intervene. And then as you guys have thought about models, um, you know, have you thought about using off-the-shelf stuff versus you know, using, obviously you sit on an incredibly interesting set of data. Um, right. you know, I feel like we've seen folks uh, either fine-tuning smaller models to be able to run faster and cheaper, or you know, but a lot of people I feel like start generally with state-of-the-art, see what's possible, and then kind of iterate from there. Mm-hmm. How have you guys kind of thought about that? Uh, we have been really like to have great partnerships with Anthropic and OpenAI. Um, since the sort of early days of when we started working on it. And so um, they are very good at the infrastructure and like initial model building part of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be exceedingly difficult to compete at the infrastructure <laughs> level with either of those companies or Google. And so um, while we, I, I, conceptually the way I think about this is like the problem that they are solving is how do you build a good model that follows instructions and how do you host it in a really scalable way, in a reliable way? Um, and then the problem that we are solving is more understanding the particular tasks that we want our models to perform, mm-hmm. and then figuring out how do we best um, collect or generate synthetic data to, for those models. Um, one of the things that we've um, committed to is so, so far is um, not training on our customer data. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is really important. Like I don't want Notion models to be trained on my personal data because <laughs> I keep a lot of my own information in Notion, and so that um, that's of course a challenge. But I think it's actually uh, Pushed us into thinking uh, a lot more systematically, but like if you're if you're generating a synthetic data set of like workspaces um, or Notion documents, you have to really understand what are the core kinds of archetypes of pages, how are these structured, and so that's actually I think for us to really understand how Notion workspaces are organized um, and what kinds of documents are the prototypical documents we want to serve AI for. But um, on the on the model question. Uh, I, our role, as compared to their role in this kind of partnership, is like understanding are the profile of our tasks really well, figuring out how we can like evaluate those tasks. But if even something as simple as a summary, what makes a good summary is actually the criteria for a good summary is actually really different for like a meeting note versus like a long technical document. Totally. Versus um, sometimes an ocean page is just like a like a bug report. Like it doesn't really make sense to even summarize that. It's like the 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 bug is in the title of the page, and so understanding the task. And then doing the legwork around like building the data sets evaluations around that task, I think is more um, where we've spent a lot of our time. We it's always on the I think on the back of uh, the minds of uh, the different people on our team that there's a possibility that you know we could always explore open source models. Um, I think we're we're doing some exploration around different kind of embedding models right now, um, but so far uh, we haven't um, shipped anything to production with open source models. How do you think about with um, you know like running multiple models? Like I guess maybe you run them against your evaluation set and kind of see which one is you know the best for the different use case. But yeah. um, how do you think about testing those or running multiple models side by side? Um, yeah, yeah. The best model to use for a particular feature depends on a lot of things. Depends on first of all, the model has to kind of perform up to expectation, mm-hmm. um, and then beyond that, there are like some models. Can support higher throughput, and so if you want something that runs kind of batch in the background, for our auto pill feature, anytime the page changes, we sort of resummarize the page or re-extract the information. And for that kind of thing, you probably want a model that can support higher throughput. And so, depending on all, all these all these factors, um, uh, we look at um, kind of everything from the capabilities to the cost, and then figure out what the best model is. Um, and often that means totally different model scale, perhaps different provider. Um, for different different features. What kind of pre-processing do you guys do before you're sending the request to these models? I think, um, you know, we Jacob mentioned we talked with Canva and they had this like elaborate filtering process where they would, you know, go through a bunch of different checks before sending out one of the one of the queries. Um, 
like how much pre-processing do you guys do and then kind of what goes into um, forming those prompts? For every Notion AI feature, you're, if you are specifying some kind of prompt or query, it'll um, almost certainly be wrapped in a lot of our own processing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is, uh, like for a lot of our writer features, if you say something like, like, oh, you did a good first draft, but make this um, make this more punchy, that'll be wrapped in some prompt template that includes like what the model's already done, maybe the full history of the dialogue plus your, your revision. Um, for something like Q&A, we have... Uh, one of the first phases is we take your Q and actually supports multi-turn conversation. Mm -hmm. So if you ask a question initially, like like uh, what's David working on this week, and then it gives you an answer, um, you could follow up by saying, "Hey, tell me more about that like automation project," uh, and it'll know the context. And it'll it'll search. There's a query rewrite phase where we the model might search for something like David automation project, mm -hmm. given the context of the conversation. And so even even in places where it's not so obvious, perhaps that there's a middle layer that we do a lot of um, passes to restructure queries, restructure prompts. And then do you, on the output side, like for something like Q&A, do you have like a checking process at the end where you're like, let's make sure this isn't totally hallucinated or ties back to some document or uh, or have you just you know tried enough edge cases that you're confident in the, in the output? This seems like the kind of thing that may change over time. So I, w I certainly wouldn't commit to what I'm about to say, but especially as the models get better, I think we, we found it pretty good at not saying impressive. Um, <laughs> at least not saying objectionable things. And then uh, things like hallucination, I think we've made a lot of stride on, but it's still something that we're working on on the, on the edges. I mean, one thing I'm curious about is it, it's not, I feel like you guys are gurus on the prompt side of like figuring out the, you know, you're experimenting, you know, one of the uh, like scale and a lot of interesting edge cases and mm -hmm. figuring out how to get the right outputs from these models. And I think one big question in the space is going to be how easy it is to switch between models. Mm. And I'm just curious about your experience when you like nail the prompts for you know a certain type of model. How easy is it to like you know switch out OpenAI for Anthropic or go to a different you know uh, kind of like size model and still have those prompts hold true for uh, you know it's kind of a macro question, but I'm curious what you've observed on that. Prompts are downstream from the evaluation criteria that you use to judge a model's output, which are again downstream from your understanding of the problem or the task the model needs to perform. And so um, I think we do the best job at prompt engineering when we have a clear understanding of, like, for summaries, as a, as a sort of pet example again, um, for a particular kind of document, which maybe we use a different stage of the pipeline to identify or something, uh, for a particular kind of document, here are the criteria, and then we, we might ask the model, make sure that your summary you know, includes these things and doesn't include these things and is of this format based on our understanding of the task. Um, and then maybe maybe the model, per model tweaks that we do, maybe like uh, you know type something in all caps to make sure the model doesn't do it. Maybe we, we notice that like a common pattern with summaries is some uh, a particular model from a particular AI vendor really likes to say in this document the document dis <laughs> the document discusses X Y Z topic. And I'm like you don't really need to. Say and I've I've tried so many different ways to get the model to just like not say the phrase in this document. Like don't be meta, don't reference in this document. Just like rephrase the content. It's like very hard. And so th those kinds of tweaks I think may be different um, different per per provider per model. And so those you might have to tweak in the end. But I think the, the bulk of the instructions, especially as model models overall get better at following instructions, the bulk of the tweaking is just like what the evaluation, what the criteria are, and then what the shape of the task is, what format do you want? And then those are, I think, under, that understanding of the problem and the task, I think, carries over between models. Yeah. What about across languages? Ooh. Um, large models generally transfer well across languages. Um, I think they also, models at least the ones that are trained with sort of like a representative corpus from the entire internet, they still tend to exceed at English uh, or excel at English and then sort of performance falls off in some way um, across other languages. And so um, as a baseline, they transfer pretty well. We usually, we usually just prototype with the English one because um, Notion is predominantly English. And then uh, as we get closer to, to launch, we'll um, have specific evaluation data sets for evaluating multilingual performance and we'll try to like add few shot examples or do training to to bolster performance on the other languages. Um, but as a baseline, we we find at least the really large models transfer well across languages. Um, actually, for Q and A in particular, this is really fun because you can ask a question like um, like what are some sales that the Japan team made this week? And even if those documents are in Japanese, it'll like read those documents and translate the answer back to you. So you don't even really need an intermediate translation layer, which is cool. You've been a big proponent of kind of iterating on interfaces and making the interface kind of right for the AI use case. 
Um, like, how do you think about giving users or maybe power users freedom and flexibility versus kind of guiding people towards, you know, maybe how AI can be most helpful for them um, mm -hmm. and what that means for how you design kind of AI features at Notion? And I think the answer is similar for both Notion in general as well as for AI, which is you want to pick the right building blocks. Mm -hmm. um, and you want to give users, you certainly want to, for, for every AI feature, you, there's um, always, uh, you can always drop down to like something quite near the lowest level, which is you can just prompt the AI pretty directly. Um, obviously, we still have some intermediate processing to add like the context about your page and your workspace and so on, but but um, there are some pretty vanilla, blank, unopinionated prompt templates that we use for like the the power users. But even even then, you want to decide like what context to include um, in, in um, in, for Notion more broadly, the customization, uh, like the users still can't write their own HTML and CSS, right? We give you instead yeah. this like pretty rich block abstraction. And so um, one question though I've had for the longest time since I joined the team was what are the kind of blocks for AI? Um, what are documents for AI? What are blocks for AI? Which we still, I don't, I think at least the team doesn't have a consensus on what the answer is yet. But um, you want to give people the right abstractions. Uh, I think depending on what you want the AI, what you consider the AI output, um, those abstractions are different. If it's just writing, then I think writing's pretty free form, and so it's I think custom prompts go a long way. If it's like um, I've talked with some of my friends recently about generative interfaces, where models mm -hmm. can um, output instead of text, it can output like an entire piece of UI. Huh. In that case, you probably want some kind of like a component library or a UI language where the model outputs like buttons that do things. And probably all the buttons should look similar and coherent with your overall product design. Um, uh, Adapt recently started um, exploring models that can perform actions. And so in that world, it seems like they're also exploring, I don't know if you've looked at their, their new release, but mm -hmm. they have a kind of a domain-specific language also for taking actions in the browser. And so mm -hmm. like maybe that's their building block. And so um, for customizability, you want to pick the right building block. Um, I think we're still in the process of exploring what exactly want, we want like the full capability set of Notion AI to be and what the building blocks would be a function of that. Well, we always like to end our interviews with what we call the quick fire round, where we get your, your hot takes on, on everything in AI. Um, yeah, good to take a sip of water yeah. before, that, before the quick fire <laughs> round. I, I, I totally agree. But to kick things off, we, we like to ask everyone, um, what's one thing that's like overhyped and one thing that's underhyped in AI right now? I think context length is overhyped. <laughs> um, I struggle to imagine really, really useful tasks that require like 50,000 words. Um, I think a lot of it resembles like retrieving some information. Yep. Um, but I think even if you can pack all of your data in like 100,000 tokens, if there's a lot of noise in that data, the model's still going to do worse. And you still want to have yeah. some amount of like filtering over the data. Yeah, I feel uh, like six months ago, it was like there was still debate on like whether it was going to be RAG or just ever expanding context windows. Right. And I think at this like point, it's pretty, clear, <laughs> yeah, pre, it's pretty clear. Yeah, it's pretty clear you're on you, team you're RAG. Both. <laughs> I mean, I think RAG is always the retrieval, um, getting good information into the context, I think, is always going to be like where you need to start. And then um, maybe there actually are like, 10,000 tokens worth of really relevant information. And then at that point, maybe the extra context is helpful. But I think it's also kind of an issue when you're training really long context models too. Mm. This, this is now like quick, not quick fire. I'm just like going on a rant. But <laughs> if, if, if you're training models that are up to like 64,000 or 100,000 tokens in length, how are you generating, like an in interesting challenge is how do you find um, examples of tough instruction following tasks mm. with like answers where the model needs to make full use of the entire 100,000 yeah. tokens of context in there. Like those are not, the, the, this is not like a naturally occurring data set. Um, some clever approaches that I've seen include like, um, uh, like one particular task that you can construct sort of synthetically is you take a really long piece of text, you find some subset of that that includes an answer, and then you generate the answer to that with a smaller low context window language model. And then you give the, when you, at training time, you give the long context model the full original text. And then the model has to locate the information from like needle in a haystack from this like larger document. And like you can do synthetic tricks like that, but um, I think fundamentally most useful tasks don't require that that much. I feel like probably like 16 to 32K. I feel like I might eat my words in five years, but, but at this point, I think a lot of things that we want language models to do, uh, 32K, 32K tokens might be enough. Um, I think that I think is underhyped is alternative, alternative to transformers. 
Um, mm. Which I guess maybe another way to say that maybe the trans- Transformers are right, but I don't think that's true. I think Transformers are awesome, um, but it's the great thing about Transformers is that they are really good at modeling long sequences and they are efficient. Um, nothing architecturally about the Transformer is like su- is like the most optimal thing ever, and so I think it's totally possible that we're going to find another architecture that is really good at modeling sequences and um, efficient, maybe even more efficient. It's interesting. I think we've had a couple people say that about Transformers mm. to their, they either, as you mentioned, said Transformers were overhyped or alternative architectures were underhyped, um, which will be interesting to follow. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the reason that we have these models we do now is mostly because we just train on so much data and yeah. the models are good at absorbing that information. Um, the models being good at absorbing information, I think is actually pretty key. Like, um, Models we have we had previously that, that theoretically supported really long contextures. We're not really good at utilizing all that information. Like LSTMs are really terrible at using context beyond like a few thousand tokens. Um, but now that we know why tra- we're trying to get a good understanding of why Transformers are really good at these tasks, I think we'll see alternative architectures yeah. emerge over the next few years. Any you have your eye on? Uh, I think state space models are cool. Fire round number two. What's been in your biggest surprise building Notion AI? Or What's one thing you thought would work that didn't end up working at all? It's probably more nuanced than I think the question stylistically <laughs> asks for. But I think uh, I think um, I've been surprised how off how well really general approaches work. I guess this is a, this is a kind of a lesson around how to customize a model for a particular domain or a particular set of tasks. Um, a really specific example is like if you if in your product you have like five different tasks you want a model to do, mm-hmm. maybe you want it to answer some questions, you want it to like help you write something, you want it to like, uh, um, maybe another one might be like, that's some, an idea that we've thrown around at the company is like, AI hey, should somehow be able to like help you onboard onto a product faster. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine a few different tasks that you want a model to do. Um, a, a thing that it's, it might be slightly easier to get up and running with is to build like specific prompts and specific models for each of these cases. Mm-hmm. But I think there are longer term payoffs for uh, potentially trying to build a single model that that, that does all of these things. Mm. Um, maybe you build data sets for each of these cases, but then you train a model on all of these things. Or um, and, and that's like one way where you work towards like a general thing that can solve all these things. And I think there's uh, you end up with a model that like overall understands the domain of your product better. Um, another example might be like like I'm starting to do some experiments with generative UI or models output um, output. Interactive elements, um, or I should say, me and a, a couple of the team members are, and um, that's the kind of thing where, like, there's again a trade-off to be made between: do you build an interface that is like hard-coded, but that's powered by a generative AI, or do you give the AI more control over what shows up on the screen? And giving the AI more control over what shows up on the screen is like a harder ML problem. But I think my bet is, longer term, you're going to see a lot more interesting things you can do with that. And so um, I think. Given the pace of how quickly models are getting better, um, generality, I think, is something interesting to bet on. And I feel like, you know, from first principles, Notion would be one of the most interesting places to work on AI uh, features more generally. If you weren't at Notion, like, what one company would you go to uh, to uh, to work on their AI features? I mean, I think I think MidJourney is such a unique company. Um, there's lots of unique things about them. The one that I'm particularly curious about I would be curious about as someone who likes to prototype and tinker is they operate in a really like lab kind of way. I think GitHub Next um, that works on Copilot also operates mm-hmm. similarly, or I used to operate similarly based on my references. They're a little bit outdated, but where they have um, kind of individuals that are champions of specific ideas, and then they sort of push specific projects forward or prototypes forward. And then um, if that approach works, it ends up blooming into something that's sort of ready to go to production. And at that point, there's probably more of a team effort. But um, it's kind of a, not really a competitive environment, but it's kind of a garden of just like different people trying different things and trying to figure out what the best ideas are. Um, and I think that always yields really productive outcomes. Um, I spoke to someone at one organization that operated like this, and they're like, yeah, we internally have like six different versions of our next model. I'm like, <laughs> how does that, how does that even work? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be more fruitful to just like combine all those ideas into one? And like, uh, I think if, if you have individuals, or especially if you have sort of, Individuals that are motivated to solve a particular problem, individuals are able to iterate much, much faster than a team. And so this kind of garden approach, I think, actually works really well. So I think mid-journey is super interesting for that um, reason. Um, 
I think Adept is also actually doing a lot of interesting things. Um, they 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 are tackling a really really ambitious problem, which is this like incredibly general agent that's able to um, perform any task that you can do on the computer. But uh, it seems like they are taking their challenge in stride, and I'm, I'm sure they're <laughs> interesting things. And to wrap up, um, where can people go to learn more about you and Notion AI? So for Notion AI, we have this shiny, shiny, relatively new domain, Notion.ai. Ooh, ooh! And if you go there, you'll have to battle for the .ai, or did you guys already have it? Um, I I did not personally battle for it, but I'm pretty sure Akshay, our COO, stepped in a ring of some sort. <laughs> um, you know, through through some dollars. Um, on the other side, that feels but, like one that would be way cheaper to buy early in the company's history than now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. I, I actually don't know any of the backstory how we ended up with that. One, one day he just came up in our channel and he was like, Notion.ai, here's a domain. And I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> don't ask any questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Picked it up in a back alley somewhere. Yeah. But you can go to Notion.ai or um, if you're already using Notion, I'm sure there are emails in your inbox waiting for you to help you try it out and, um, and, and uh, hear how you use it. Um, I am probably most active on, on Twitter at The Cephist, uh, or if you like Google Linus Notion. Um, I also have a blog where I sometimes write about interfaces in AI. Can confirm great Twitter follow. Highly recommend. For the Taylor Swift content. For the Taylor Swift content. Well, that was a super fun episode with Linus. Um, I think it was really, really cool to hear him talk about how Notion structures their teams, um, especially around AI with kind of this, you know, I think he said there were a dozen engineers working on it and then a few designers. And also just how they kind of iterate quickly in the early stages and like test these features out internally that they really stuck out to me how much dog fooding they do both with like the feature set and the evaluation. It seems like all of Notion is really, well, they're living in Notion, but then also testing out these AI features. I thought that was really cool. Totally. And it's interesting, right? Like, you know, for a feature like Q&A that they build, you know, you could have a product team that's just thinking about that. Uh, but what I think he said, which is, is super smart, is they're going to do so much in the future around retrieval algorithmic generation that getting that right feels like more of a a foundation like layer level decision for them, yeah. um, and makes total sense to kind of split it out. Yeah, it's, it was interesting because it it seemed like that had kind of been a journey for them where they started thinking, okay, we're going to build AI for each of these products, and then now Linus is thinking is you know maybe there's more of a horizontal platform where you know the retrieval all happens by one system and. Uh, maybe you have one model that does a bunch of different tasks. So that was that was kind of interesting to see as a company that's a little farther in their AI journey. Yeah. I feel like one common trend with all these AI companies implementing products is that it's so hard to predict what people will do with them. Like, it's yeah. funny. You think of a, Q, a product like Q&A. It's like it's literally a search product. Like, you'd ima I totally imagine you'd think, okay, 99.9% .9 of it is going to be like, you know, uh, what's the answer to this question? You know, what happened in this meeting? And it's just hilarious that people are, are using it. Like, how many users are there total? Or like, what happened, you know, this specific week or they're using it for notion support yeah exactly exactly <laughs> like how do i share this um yeah and you know so hard to predict that without i think you made the great point during the episode that uh that's one of the big advantages distribution has like you just get you learn that so much quicker yeah having so many people both internally and then externally uh using it so quickly totally what uh what did you find exciting or um interesting well, I, I got to read this Taylor Swift paper now. Like, yeah. That was definitely like, what a you, wild. Uh, this is the second episode in a row that we've talked about Taylor Swift. I think we should make it a trend. Yeah, um, we'll we'll have to figure out how we can hit it with perplexity. Yeah, um, and it's a shame because I I'd asked them the explicit question I'd asked them was what song you know like it best encapsulates yeah. what's happening, and I'd obviously thought a lot about my answer. Yeah, well, so what but was I didn't your think answer? I got it. You need to calm down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> AI song that most resembles their Taylor Swift song that most resembles the AI market. Yeah. You need to calm down. That's I think, good. I think that was, that would be my message, but also like, uh, I feel like in the in <laughs> pre-show you were saying 22, which I think also kind of you know, yeah. encapsulates some of the young vibes. I like 22. It's kind of, it's at this young, like opportunistic world is your oyster type phase. And so, um, I don't know, peak hype, that's what that's what 22 feels like. Um, yeah, so I would go with 22. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, well, maybe we just have to add that to the quick fire now from now yeah. on. Yeah, favorite Taylor Swift song or, yeah, that's a good quick fire. Over underhyped Taylor Swift song. I, I thought another thing that was really interesting in the episode was just how much they built themselves. Yeah. Um, like 
the, I mean, eval, we, we, I feel like we've seen tons of eval companies, you know, it's obviously such an really? important space. Um, but God, what a hard problem. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah it, it's really interesting to think about if they would build all of that now. Yeah. Because uh, the market is changing so quickly. And even six months ago, it was, it looked different than it does now. And six months before that, when they were starting on a bunch of this AI stuff, there wasn't this whole crop of startups that we've now seen. Um, but it also seems like Linus kind of thinks that they had to do some of that because they're iterating and this allowed them to iterate faster. Uh, but I don't know, I think the- Well, also it's interesting to hear yeah. like there's no substitute for manually going through like yeah. the ones that really don't work. And and a lot of the automations that you may wanna do around this are just kind of summarizing it with a number. It sounds like where they've gotten the most value is going super deep into yeah. you know what fails and understanding why. Yeah, totally. Um, it was fascinating that they, because they want to own everything, it seems like except for the model, which they're happy to outsource to Anthropic and OpenAI. And I thought that was interesting, which kind of makes sense. Like they're a they're an app company. They're not an infra company that needs to be training and deploying models at massive scale. Uh, but I thought that it was interesting. He was kind of like, no, we, we don't do that. Um, yeah, because yeah. you'd think that maybe at, at some point, you know, for either latency reasons or cost reasons, you might want to try something else. But the reality is, as, as you said, uh, I mean, the large foundation model companies keep slashing costs yeah. and they have a pretty broad array of options of, of model speed. Uh, and so, you know, it seems like they've been able to get by just fine uh, not having to make any of those trade-offs. Yeah, and they want the notions of the world to be successful building on them. Like they want, this is the perfect use case for LLMs in SaaS. And people are always like, oh, what's the enterprise use case for LLMs? Notion AI is, I think it's kind of GitHub Copilot was probably number one. I think Notion AI is one of the top, you know, five. Yeah, no, we made, we made a presentation for some of our poor codes and it was like one of the main main logos, yeah. uh, right front and center. Um, I feel like it's, it's certainly one of the most like consumer, you know, one of the most interesting consumer facing applications that's, yeah. that's used these in a, in, a, in a meaningful way. Totally. I, uh, I had a bunch of opportunities to either make fun of your writing or my own writing and how much <laughs> AI could help it. Um, so maybe next time we need to work that in. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I, I could use, I could definitely use some help. Um, I think, yeah, the, honestly, I think the templates that they're, that they're shipping, like I really like the buttons. I don't know how much you've played with the product, but just like summarize or like, I personally like that because even just coming up with the prompt to be like, oh, I want to do this thing for a blog post, it can sometimes take a lot of mental energy beyond, I don't know. Yeah. Totally. I feel like you and I are both not like, you know, social media naturals. And so I feel like even having used some of these tools before, like I had this one that I was using with tweets that was just like literally always like make it punchier. And it yeah. was so helpful because yeah. like, it's just not my style. Yeah. What do you think of uh, OpenAI Dev Day? I, I think it's fascinating. I don't know that anything was that shocking. I think the two big trends are longer context windows and cheaper models. I think we've kind of been seeing that for a while. We talked about the cost for inference and the cost for training going down 10X over the last year. I think this is more of the same. They slash prices, what, 3X, I think, for, for Turbo. And yeah, so prices keep going down. I think that's great for the startup ecosystem. And then, you know, they're kind of, shipping a ton of stuff. Um, and I think this is also, you know, they're starting to, they own the models and they're starting to build up the stack into, um, you know, more solutions. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's just wild to you know, be running a business with AI features and on any, you know, given day when this happens, your costs go from like 15% of revenue to 5% or something. Like yeah. it's just the, the swing that happens yeah. uh, in in these price changes is is so impressive. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, you know, it seems like it's poised to kind of continue. Yeah. Um, but it, it, like you said, it's so hard to then predict, you know, oh, well, something's kind of cost prohibitive to do today or we can't charge enough for that today. And it's like, you probably just build it anyway because, you know, six months from now, 12 months from now. Totally. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see what Anthropic does now because I could imagine if you were a Notion and you're running Anthropic and OpenAI side by side, there obviously are some differences, as he was saying, certain use cases, one's better versus the other. But now one of them is 3x cheaper than it was before. And then so maybe Anthropic would also have to cut their prices by 3x, which 
again, would be great for everyone that's building on top of LLMs. Yeah. It's um, just cool to see the, I feel like the energy around, yeah. like, even just, you know, all the people that are watching it live and yeah. just like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really cool to see. I mean, some of the demos are really cool. The, the text to speech and the talking was very cool. I don't know if you saw the part where they were giving out free open AI credits to <laughs> everyone in the audience and they were like, oh, find five people in the audience and give them $500 of open AI credits. And then they did that. And they're like, actually, everyone here is part of our community. Give everyone here $500 <laughs> of open AI credits. And it just went through. And then the AI was saying, hey, you're all getting open AI credits and started naming the people. I don't know. It's, it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there's uh, right afterwards, there was all this like, you know, there's this the death of RAG or the death of vector databases. And it's like, it's great that they added a lot of those features in, but obviously yeah. there's, there's so much people are going to want to do outside of OpenAI, you know, uh, both just sensitivities around where they send their data, uh, abilities to kind of customize, uh, you know, implementations of that. And so, uh, you know, I think it was like kind of hypey on Twitter for a bit afterwards, but I'm curious to see what... Uh, totally. I, I think there were a lot of people on Twitter that were saying, you know, this is going to kill all the startups. And then there was the other camp that was like, oh, no, it's not. Um, and I think there were a bunch of people making the comparison to AWS, which I think is a very good one in that they're going to offer a bunch of tools and, and tons of them. But in any given vertical, like Snowflake did, or like some of these other companies did, there's totally an opportunity for startups to compete um, with the product in that vertical and win for a variety of reasons. Yeah. I like how you got in the snowflake reference there. Good, good. Always have to podcast. get in snowflake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as many, uh, as many times as possible. We maybe need to make it start. Yeah. We just have fake snow yeah, in this room. <laughs> yeah. We're already in the mountains. Uh, maybe whenever it's uttered, it just like snow comes yeah. down in the room. That was really fun. Yeah. That did. Sweet.